We've got a great privilege this morning to have Chase Bowers with us. He's from the Temple Bible Church. He's our global outreach pastor, and we look forward to hearing from him. Thank you, Chase. Jim, it's good to be with you this morning here at Grace. I've got to tell you, until I started preparing this message, I thought that Dave McMurray liked me. Uh, I would have called him a friend, even. And then I, I realized that he was asking me on July 5th, just a couple of miles from Fort Hood, to talk to a church about finding our identity in Christ primarily rather than in our Americanness. So we're not friends anymore. Some of you, even as you hear that, might even think, kind of, what's the difference? I, I would have asked that question for a while. Two things happened that really made me aware that I might want to find my identity more in Christ than in being an American. Though I love America, glad that I live here. I'm grateful uh, for the freedoms we enjoy, like being together here today as followers of Jesus. As I was coming to believe, something happened that made me think, I don't know that I want to find my identity primarily as, as an American, and that was when the Dallas Cowboys fired Tom Landry as their coach. And I was a teenager. I, I don't know if I want really to be identified with this group of people who would let this happen. The other thing was this. I was, um, some people would say I'm a little bit naive. Um, had this uncle that I just loved. And this uncle, uh, he and my aunt kind of raised me for a, a good while. And I grew up loving milk. And I liked Borden milk. And I really thought the Borden family milked Elsie. All their cows were named Elsie, I guess. They milked Elsie, put it in the bottle. It went right to the store and right to me. I didn't realize it was this huge, massive corporation, and it wasn't coming straight from the cow to me. And when I found that out, you talk about ruining your 30th birthday. I don't know if I want to be part of this. See, Peter, he's writing to a people... Um, Primarily, though they're believers in Christ, primarily Jews that have been dispersed, and they find their identity and their, their nationalistic identity and their religious identity, you couldn't separate from each other. And he's helping them to see really that they have a new story, that there are new people living new lives and that everything is changing for them. And he uses familiar language from their Old Testament throughout his book to help them recognize that this flows out of the story that they know, but they're really living a new story. And so this morning when we look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through about 12, what we're going to do is look at really our identity, and because of our identity, some imperatives we have, and then look back at the indicatives really form our, our identity and our imperatives. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're in First Peter 2, 9 through 12. We're going to talk about what it looks like really to be people of the King. So let's read that together. i tell you what, I want to highlight a couple of things. Peter's told them at the beginning of First, of, of first Peter 2, they're to lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy. They're long like newborn babes for pure spiritual milk. And then 
He tells them they're living stones. There's this house that's being built, and they're living stones that make up this house, the church of God. And he says there's some, and he's using Old Testament language, that reject him. They stumble because they disobey the message, and to this they were appointed or destined to do. In verse 9 he says, But you, you're not like that. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, maybe your translation says aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So Father, we thank You that You have drawn us into this new story and that You would call us, in fact, a people for Your own possession. God, we thank you for what that means for us, that that you've adopted us into your family and given us new life, and we also recognize that that means that all we are and all we have and all we hope to be belong to you. So God, we want to be people who declare your praise. As we look at the text, I pray that it would result in us doing just that. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at our identity and look at really what he says about us. It's that we're a new creation. If any man's in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. Old things have gone away and new things have come. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Now if you read that, as an American, and especially if you don't have a Bible that has these little A's and B's and footnotes, you might read that and think that's just Peter saying that. He's actually quoting the Old Testament Scripture to them. He's quoting the book of Exodus when the people were coming out of Egypt and they're coming in toward their wilderness wandering, headed to the promised land. God says this to them in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In verse 5 he says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, a people for God's own possession, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what God tells Moses. They're my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The design was, would be that Israel would be a light among the nations, that they would declare God's praise. The Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, they were told that this would show, if you obey these laws, your wisdom to the nations. See, Israel was going to be God's treasured possession so that they would make much of Him among the nations And somewhere along the way, they got that turned around and they began to make much of themselves among the nations and separated themselves out, not in such a way as to show themselves holy, but really they kind of thought they were better. 
And Peter's saying to these people, no, you're a kingdom of priests, you're a holy nation, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I have a, a friend from Canada, and I remember the first time I met him, we were doing a mission camp together, and he's from Alberta, Canada, and we got together, and he, he said, um, you guys from from Texas think you're better than everybody else, don't you? And I just kind of said, yeah, yeah, we, we do. We, we do. And I, I'll tell you, it, when I started thinking about what it's like to find really our identity in our Americanness, I, I immediately just shifted way past the USA to Texas. And I I thought about when I travel overseas, people get excited when they hear you're from America, but when they hear you're from Texas, it's it's almost embarrassing, except that you're from Texas, right? And so my wife and I, when we went to adopt our, our third child, he's our first adopted child, he's our third child, Jeb, he's from Rwanda, we went with nine other families, and our driver, his name was Felix, and he wanted to know where we're all from, and so the first family, well, we're from Ohio, oh, that's great. And so this next family, we're from Alabama. Next family, we're from Tennessee. Next family, we're from this place. We're from Michigan. We're from this. And so it gets to us, and we say, we're from Texas. And he just, nobody else gets to introduce themselves. Oh, Texas! And he's got all these questions. See, we find our, our identity primarily either in our nationality or our great statehood or maybe in our ethnicity or maybe in what we do instead of primarily in being in Christ, and being in Christ. And he's telling us we're a new creation. We're a new creation. Kind of three things he says, that you're a new people, a new priesthood, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, saying that we've kind of got a, a new allegiance, a new allegiance. So what does it look like when we're kind of raised up to say I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, which, which I do. I'm not saying don't do that. But we're raised up to think about allegiance primarily to a nation. When ultimately our allegiance is primarily to a king, and his name is Jesus, and it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to, to mesh the two. It's kind of a dangerous thing to, to mesh the two. Sometimes we can take the American story and the Christian story and we can interlock them so much in a way that's unbiblical and, and confusing. Now, I want to tell you one of the things that I always see around the 4th of July that just drives me crazy. I hope you didn't post this. I'm going to say something about Facebook. hope this wasn't on your page yesterday. If it was, I'm, I'm sorry. Just don't put it up next 4th of July and we'll be okay, all right? So you see lots of red, white, and blue on 4th of July. That's a good thing. Then one of the things, though that I've seen for the last three or four years is blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus wrapped in an American flag. I don't know if you guys saw that. I saw that yesterday. Do you have that on your page, Dave? No? <laughs> blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus wrapped in an American flag. And it's like, well, to be a follower of Jesus, of course, I mean, you can be a follower of Jesus from another nation, but really it's better if you're American, right? And to be American is to be a follower of Jesus. We don't really have that confusion anymore, I hope. But what, I was just thinking about that yesterday, and I thought, well, what would we do if we saw a, a red-haired, green-eyed Jesus wrapped in the flag of Ireland? Do, do they even, I mean, would they even conceive to do that? 
Do, surely, I mean, surely they wouldn't. We would just laugh at that, right? The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus and the American flag looks better anyway. But see, sometimes we mix our, mix our story up. And in the world of missions, we call that syncretism. And it's when, it's when a culture takes their cultural story and the gospel story, and they try to mix the two together instead of recognizing as believers that really... We're living a brand new story with a a new allegiance. Maybe a guy who had trouble doing that more than anyone else is Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible is going through conquering Europe, and as he's conquering Europe, one of the guys he kind of became friends with was the Prince of Athens, and he was invited to a banquet by the Prince of Athens, and as he went there, the prince's family was there, and one of his daughters... Ivan the Terrible was just smitten with immediately. And after the banquet, he went to the prince of Athens and he said, I want to marry your daughter. And the prince of Athens says, you can marry my daughter on one condition. And that condition is this, that you become a member of the Orthodox Church. And Ivan the Terrible just said, done. He was in love. And so there was a problem, though, because Ivan the Terrible, he didn't get that name because his cooking was bad, right? He was a conqueror. And to be in the Orthodox Church at that time, you couldn't be a soldier. But Ivan, he kind of devised a plan. And a hundred of his men went with him to show support for him as he was baptized into the Orthodox Church. And so they all go out into this body of water about chest deep, and there's a priest presiding over the ceremony. And just before they're baptized, they all pull their swords out and hold them up as high as they can and they go all the way under the water and they stop right here. And what they were saying really is the church can have all of me except this. And what this was for them was their identity. We're soldiers. We're conquerors. I'll give you all of me but this. And so a question would be, Where is our chief allegiance? Because we're a new people in Christ. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. That we might declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So a question is, a question is, where's your chief allegiance? Where's your chief allegiance? Is it to Jesus and the kingdom, the multi-ethnic, multinational kingdom He is building among all nations? So where's your allegiance? Where's your allegiance? Because we're a new people, a new priesthood, and we're taking new action. Namely, we're telling a new story. We're telling a new story. Why? Because we are that people so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're to declare His praises. I love this verse of Scripture, especially this second passage. I want to tell you guys about when this second passage, or second part of 1 Peter 9, got me in trouble. 1 Peter 2.9, most embarrassing moment in ministry for me, maybe ever. I was about 25. I was a youth pastor, and I'd been thinking about this, declaring His praise, and I was in Southeast Texas. Every Sunday morning, I would go into pastor's office. I would put candy in my pockets. Little kids would come up and get candy. And one day, this little girl came up to get candy. 
And uh, so I gave her a piece of candy. She said, thanks, Mr. Chase. I said, you're welcome. And she had a little Barbie. And I said, what's your Barbie's name? And she goes, her name's Christina Aguilera. Well, back then, Christina Aguilera, young, popular singer, and she had this awful, horrible song called I'm a Genie in a Bottle. And I just said some bad things I'll tell you guys about in a minute. Um, and so I carried a pocket knife. I grew up in Texas, right? So I carried a pocket knife. It was much bigger than this one, but I pulled my pocket knife out. And I said, you tell mom and dad you need to change Barbie's name or I'm going to cut her head off before next week. Whore, I know. You, shame, it's stupid, just dumb, right? Dumb. Not the smartest guy in the room ever, right? So I knew her parents well. And she did just what I wanted her to do, as dumb as that was. I've never told the kid I was going to cut their doll's head off since then, okay? But she went running to her parents and told them. And so they said, hey, did you tell our daughter you're going to cut her Barbie's head off? And I said, only if she doesn't change her name. And they're like, why would you tell her that? And I said, well, what's her name? And they said, Christina Aguilera. And I said, well, what's her song? What, what is it? And they go, it's a, a genie in a bottle. That's a popular one. And I said, well, what, is it, what does it say? No, I don't know. I said, no, you probably know. Why don't you sing the chorus? Well, I'm not singing it. Well, just tell me what the chorus says. And so dad, his eyes kind of got a little bit big, and mom's not even, doesn't have a clue. And she goes, I'm a, I'm a genie in a bottle. Come rub me the right way. I said, oh, okay. And so I said, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have threatened to cut Barbie's head off. I'll, I'll own that one, right? Not the brightest idea I've ever had. But what I want you to hear is that what you're inviting your daughter to do is to proclaim the excellencies of one who is not worthy of such proclamation. You're inviting her to declare the praise of a girl who's going to call her to a life you don't want her to live. Like, right, but you shouldn't have pulled your knife out and threatened. Right, 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 I, I got that. I got that. But you guys might be doing something far more dangerous than cutting Barbie's head off, right? Far more dangerous. So I wonder, I wonder sometimes if we proclaim the excellencies of baseball and apple pie, good things, so much, so much so, that those get a brighter light shown on them than the gospel does in our lives. Whose excellency, what excellency are you proclaiming? See, we're to declare the excellencies or proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Because we're telling new story. We're telling a new story, but we're not just telling a new story. We're living new lives. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're no longer living for ourselves. We're no longer embracing rugged individualism. We're embracing surrender, and we're embracing radical community. We're telling a new story. We're living new lives. We've got this new way of relating to God, this new way of relating to God that is through Jesus. You're proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of, mar out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, the, the, the idea is, is this. When I was eight years old, my family, my dad was a coach. He stopped coaching for a little bit, and I had to move to Louisiana. 
And I don't tell a lot of people of that. I, I consider that kind of my first mission trip, really. And I, and I remember we just moved about six miles in, but it was awful. You go from, I'm not, I'm not kidding, you drive on I-10, and you go from Texas I-10 to Louisiana I-10, it's like, where'd the pavement go? And I, I remember the day I found out I was moving back to Texas. It was like I had been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves. See, it's a new way of relating to God. We, we've, we were children of wrath, even as the rest, the Scripture says. But God made us alive in Jesus. We've got a new way of relating to God. We were His enemies, and now we're His children. We were among enemy forces, and now we're the treasured possession of the king it's this new way of relating to god peter wants his people to understand that so well that he he uses language from a story that they would have known from their history it's the story of hosea hosea is this prophet that's called by god and he says marry a wife of prostitution and have children of prostitution basically because Israel was living this adulterous relationship. They weren't walking in obedience to God, and it was like spiritual adultery. And so in Hosea chapter 1, he tells Hosea, God tells Hosea, or the story of Hosea, she conceived and bore a daughter, and the Lord said, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy. I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Then he says, When he had weaned no mercy, or when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. He's saying there's a break in our relationship that's happened so horribly. And without Christ now, Peter tells his readers, You had not received mercy. You were not a people. Then Hosea, a little bit later on, God says, and I will sow for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. See, Peter says in verse 10, For once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's That's really why we've got this new action of telling a new story and living new lives because we were not a people. But now we're the people of God. We had not received mercy. But now we have received mercies. So we're going to proclaim His excellency. You remember remember after 9-11, you would see all over America these NYPD hats and these FDNY hats for a couple of years. People just wore those all over because we had watched, we had watched people running from burning buildings, running from buildings that would fall to the ground. And in the midst of watching them, we would see these brave men and women running toward those buildings from New York's police department and fire department. They were running to rescue people who literally were perishing. So we wanted to honor them and 
all the more as children of wrath who've been rescued and called into this marvelous light in the kingdom of the Son that He loves. We once were not a people. We had not received mercy. But now we have. Just like those firemen, they didn't know the people. The people who were running away didn't know them. We didn't know Christ. But we received His mercy. And so we ought to declare His praises and live new lives. Live new lives because we have this new way of relating to God. We have a new way of relating to ourselves. We understand ourselves differently. Why talk? Why talk about what it means to find our identity primarily as Christians in America on the day after the 4th of July? Because our, our identity is wrapped up in one of three things. It's wrapped up in race, it's wrapped up in nationality, or it's wrapped up in vocation. I love your questions that, that you asked. They were telling me in early service, you guys, you guys do this every Sunday. It helps you get to know people. Where, how long have you been here? A couple of things you ask when you introduce yourself to people here. Where are you from and what do you do? Where are you from, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a pilot. I'm a captain. I'm enlisted. I'm a doctor. I'm a stay-at-home mom. We tend to find our identity in what we do. What would it look like? What would it look like if this week when people just you introduce yourself to new people, what do you do? I follow Jesus. What would that look like? I asked the early service. My email is on Temple Bible Church's website. I would love for you to do that this week. Hey, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? I follow Jesus. That's, that's primarily what I do. I'd, I'd love to hear if you do that what, that, what that looks like. You might get some amazing responses. You might get some not-so-amazing responses. But what would it look like if that was your default answer? What do you do? I follow Jesus. Can I tell you who he is and what he's done and is doing in me? And I don't just follow Jesus because, again, I'm not bound up in individualism, but I follow Jesus with these people from Grace Bible Church. We're this community of people who follow Jesus together. See, when we read the Scripture, I think it's important to say here, especially when we read epistles and when we read you, we tend to read, oh, that's God speaking right to me. But there's not a Greek word for y'all. There probably should be. <laughs> it's, it's plural. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We've got a new way of relating to ourselves. And then we've got a new way of relating to people. Why is that? Because we've got this new hope. We've got this new hope. And the new hope is this, that we've received mercy and we will receive mercy. The same mercy that keeps us today is the mercy that will keep us tomorrow. See, there's this reality that Jesus is going to be known as King. He'll be known as God's Son and Israel's Messiah. The kingdom of God will spread into all the world. There ultimately one day will be this resurrection when Jesus comes and sets all things right. That's going to happen. And so when we talk about being a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation, a chosen race, see, it, this is a story we're invited into. It's going to happen. The question is, are we going to be part of it? 
Are we going to be part of it? Last week I was teaching it at TBC and our text was Acts 23. And in the text there's this section where Luke tells about Paul is in this barracks in prison and it says, but the Lord stood by him and said, just as you testified to me in Jerusalem, you'll also testify about me in Rome. And Gary, my lead pastor, and I started talking about that and we started talking about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples in Acts 1.8. And I said, Gary, Acts 1.8, that's actually declaration language. It's, it's not as much command language, just like Acts 20, 23, just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus is saying to his disciples in Acts, this is going to happen. You're, you're going to be my witnesses. It's a declaration. See, Jesus will be known as king. He will be known as God's Son and Israel's Messiah. The kingdom of God will spread into all the world. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous, and Jesus is going to come and set all things right. The question is, are you going to be part of that? Are you going to be one of those people who declares the praise of Him who called you out of darkness and His marvelous light? What, what are you going to do? And what you have to do if you're really going to be about that is let your identity shape your life. You have to let your identity shape your life. So what does that mean and how do we do that? And well, we're almost done. First, you know and you treasure the King. You know and you treasure the King. I need a volunteer to help me. I'll just pick someone randomly. Dave, you'll do. That's great. All right. So, Dave, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you, what do you, what do you drive? Mitsubishi Galant, what color is it? What year is it? 2003, okay. So, and it's got a kicking system and 20-inch rims, I guess, right? Exactly. So let's say in this story, this Mitsubishi Galant 2003 silver with a kicking system and 20-inch rims is all you own, okay? It's all you own. So um, you, you have a house, but you're renting. You don't own it, Okay. And so you're driving um, between Colleen and Temple, and kind of right before you get to the ridge, there's this big field kind of on both sides, right before Nolanville, before Stillhouse, all right? You just decide you'll pull over and just take a walk, and you notice, you notice that the field you're walking in is for sale, but you're not buying it because all you have is this car. You don't have any money, and you're not interested. In, you're not a farmer. You're a pastor, right? So... You're walking in the field and you stumble over something, not because you're clumsy, you just do, okay? And you look down and there's a metal briefcase. And it pops open as you stumble over it and there's $10 million in it, okay? So you can't steal it, right? Because we're not just in church, we're in your church, right? So you're not stealing it, okay? So you got three choices. You can just close the briefcase up, go back, get in your car, drive away. You could call the owner because the field is for sale. And you could say, hey, I, there's $10 million in your field, right? Or you just, you just buy the field. Because in this story, the field is for sale for about, I don't know, about the cost of a 2003 silver Mitsubishi Gallant with a kicking system and 20-inch rim. So you could sell the car and buy the field. What, do you, what are you going to do, Dave? Buy the field. That's a no-brainer. That's a, that's a no-brainer. 
you're going to buy the field, and then you come home on your feet, right? You walk home, Autumn, hey, I sold the car and bought a field. <laughs> well, oh, okay, could you explain that a little more, you're right? But then that's okay because if, if you got $10 million, which would be yours when you bought the field, then you could buy all the 2003 silver Mitsubishi Galanche you want, right? See, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it in his joy, he went and sold all he had to buy that field. The, the reality is you can't, you can't buy the kingdom but it's been purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. It's been purchased for you by the blood of Jesus, so know and treasure the king. The idea there is that Jesus would be supremely valuable in your life. So if I ask you the question, what's the one thing you would sell all you have in order to have? Is it a relationship? Is it a status? Is it a car? Is it popularity? What's the one thing that's supremely valuable? And if you're in Christ, if you are part of this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, if in fact you've been called out of darkness in the light, if in fact you once were not a people, now you're the people of God, if you had not received mercy, and now you have, then make Jesus supremely valuable. Know and treasure the king. Know and treasure the king. Then tell the king's story. Don't make the story that your life is telling primarily about you. Make it about him. And then number three, follow the king's example. Just give yourself away. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they speak evil of you because of your good behavior, they'll glorify God on the day that he visits. Follow his example. I want to tell you about a guy who did that, a young man named William. William was 16 years old when he graduated high school in 1904. Brilliant, bright wealthy young man. His mom was really following Jesus. His dad would kind of play church, but wasn't really pursuing Christ. And for a birthday gift, his 16th birthday gift, as he graduates high school, his parents give him a gift of a trip around the world. So William sails around the world, and his mom is just plugged away. By the way, if you're just a mom who's just plugging away, and you've got a kid that's 18 months old, or maybe they've hit the terrible twos, and you're telling Bible stories and thinking, are they listening at all? Then they get in the terrific threes, and then they go back in the terrible four through teenage years, and you're just plugging away. And you think, is this doing anything? His mom's plugging away, sharing Jesus with him, telling him the story. And as he sails around the world, he sees Muslim peoples and Hindu peoples and Buddhist peoples and atheist peoples who don't know Christ. And he comes home. And though he's been accepted into Yale, he says, I, I, I want to take the gospel to the nations. I want to be a missionary. And his, his dad says, well, no, no, son, you're going to Yale, and then you're taking over the family business. A million-dollar 
family business in 1904 known as Borden Milk. And William Borden said, Dad, I'll, I'll go to Yale, but I'm going to be a missionary. And he said, well, well, you're at least going to Yale. So one of his friends says, why in the world would you trade your family fortune? Why in the world would you trade your family fortune to go be a missionary? Just be a Christian here. He knew and treasured the king. He couldn't not tell about him. He wrote in the back of his Bible that day before he went to Yale, no retreats. So he went to Yale, and one fellow student said when he got here, it was marked and clear that he was far along more so than any of us. And by the end of his freshman year, he had started small group Bible studies, prayer groups, and 150 of the 1,300 students at Yale were meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. By his senior year, 1,000 of the students at Yale were meeting for prayer and Bible study. When someone would come to faith and they were rough around the edges, no one wanted them in their group, William would just say, put them in my group. He graduates from Yale, and the job offers come. His dad reiterates, you can work for me. Other people knew him. He was a Borden, came from a great family, and these job offers keep coming. And he turns them down and decides he needs theological training, and he writes in the back of his Bible, no reserves. He goes to Princeton Theological Seminary, and when he's there, he hears from Samuel Zwimmer about Muslim peoples that need the gospel, and he learns about the Kansu people in China. And so... William, who knows and treasures the king, decides he's going to tell the king's story to the Kansu people in China. But because they're Muslim people, he's got to learn Arabic. And so he goes to Cairo, Egypt to learn Arabic. He's in language school for about three weeks. He gets spinal meningitis. Two weeks later, he's dead. The story of his death was in every major American newspaper. The tragedy of this heir to the Borden milk throne who had gone to be a missionary. His love for Jesus is told throughout the states. His family gathers his personal effects. And his mom finds his Bible. In the back of his Bible, she sees no retreats and she sees no reserves. And two days before he dies, there's dated these words, no regrets. See, this young man found his identity as one who had been called out of darkness into marvelous light and he had to let the world know. And he, he lost his, his young life doing so because his identity shaped what he did. And he said, no regrets. No regrets. So Jonathan's going to come and lead us in a song, but as he comes, we're the people of the king. We're the people of the king, so it's my prayer that his kingdom would be coming through us while we wait ultimately for his kingdom to come. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you, Father, that you've called us your treasured possession at this great cost to Your Son. You've drawn us out of darkness into this marvelous light. 
So, Father, now as people who are your people who have received mercy, God, help us to be a people who treasures you, who find our identity as one of yours more than any other thing, and who make much of you as we seek to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.